0: Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, changemakers, and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today I'm joined by Sophie Medlin. Sophie has been a dietitian for more than 17 years and she's part of a new show on channel four called Know Your Shit. Today we're gonna to be talking about food and diet. We're gonna talk about supplements. I have so many questions about supplements. Do we need them? If we do, what should we be looking for when we're buying them? We're also gonna talk about food and mood and gut health and alcohol. So lots to get through. Sophie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me, I'm excited. Well, as I say, a lot to get through, so much to talk about today. But first up, I think, uh, firstly, I'd love to understand really, I suppose, the actual day-to-day life of a dietitian you know the work that you do i recently interviewed a gp and i asked her a similar question which was kind of like in this day and age in the modern world what is it really like today to to do your your work what kind of people do you typically see so yeah could you tell us really i suppose what it's like to be a dietitian today
1: yeah cool so um i'm quite an unusual dietitian in in that in the sense that most dietitians work in the nhs so I did seven years in the NHS, then I was an academic for uh, five years, and now I work completely for myself. So I do what we might call a portfolio career, which is not really a a term I particularly identify with, but I um, run a clinical practice. I've got a team of 12 dietitians who, and we all specialize in very different things in terms of our clinical areas of practice. My area of practice is gut health, specifically colorectal, which means I mainly talk to people about poo in my clinical practice. And I have two busy clinics a week, so I see patients on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then the rest of my week is taken up with consultancy. So I design supplements and probiotics for the industry. I also do lots of media work and other bits and pieces in that department, um, articles, those kinds of things, writing, those sorts of things. And I guess day to day, I think there's lots of different things that are relevant and and, and interesting in that you know I just do my day is always very varied and I think it's when I'm seeing patients it's really full-on but so fulfilling I love it and then when I'm doing consultancy it's a little bit more relaxed but using a very different part of my brain and I've, I've got dyslexia and dyspraxia and ADHD and I think that that kind of flipping between different topics and different things and the way that my brain gets pulled in lots of different directions actually works really well for me. And if you were a dietitian in the NHS, you would be getting to the wards at kind of nine o'clock and and meeting with your team members and understanding more about what uh, is going on with your patients, what's happened over the weekend, for example, who needs tube feeding, what referrals you've had, all of that kind of stuff. But the way that I work is slightly different in that people are generally coming directly to me or via a consultant and we see them purely in outpatients rather than in hospitals.
0: Okay, well, I think even that actually is quite interesting because even this might sound very silly to someone like you Sophie but I think sometimes people hear the word dietitian and they might think that it's the same as a nutritionist or they might think yeah. that it's the same as a doctor they just you know they hear that kind of oh it's to do with food it's to do with diet and actually they might think do I need to see a dietitian do I need to you know are you going to give me um a look at my poo sample and tell me you know what diet I should eat you know so I think it is quite mm. interesting actually the kind of the, the breakdown of actually what a dietitian is really focused on and who would typically sure. see you yeah so my
1: patients range um, but they're all ve- like very much focused on gut health so patients who they might have irritable bowel syndrome for example which lots of people will be familiar with they may also have other colorectal conditions like ulcerative colitis Crohn's disease they might have things like diverticular disease they may even have hemorrhoids or anal fissures problems with the uh, sort of Defe- specifically with defecations so or pooing is the, is the problem really that I will manage and the way that we work is that we don't really use poo samples we'll definitely do I would do a very thorough assessment of your stool and verbal and that will include asking you about the colour of it the smell of it all of these things that people find really difficult to talk about and I have to continuously remind my patients that it's literally my job and I do it all day every day and I'm comfortable and I need them to try and be comfortable and try to tell me as much detail as possible. Mm. And we ask as dietitians questions way more in depth than your GP may ask, often more in depth than a gastroenterologist might ask, because we're really trying to understand your digestion and your poo is your end product of your digestion. And that helps us to understand exactly what's going on through your digestive tracts from from your mouth, from your chewing all the way through your stomach and then into your gallbladder and the sort of digestive enzymes that you may or may not be producing adequately, what's happening in your small bowel in terms of digestion and absorption, and then what happens in your colon in terms of fermentation, the sort of movement of poo across your bowel, all of those kinds of things. So we have to really get in depth with those assessments to understand exactly what's going on with someone's digestion in order to reach a diagnosis. So the aim of our treatment is always to diagnose and manage and and prepare management plans for people that protect them in terms of like, get their symptoms under control, but really importantly also maintain their long-term health. So very often people will say, well, I saw a nutritionist or I saw a doctor and they told me just to cut out dairy. And when people cut out dairy that has long-term knock-on effects on their bone health. So when we're thinking about these things, we look at the long-term picture as well as symptom management, which is often missed in less medical settings or in settings where people aren't so diet focused, if that makes sense. Mm. We also do a lot of work with people and their relationship with food. So, not only when people have digestive problems is their relationship with food disrupted because they notice that, well, when I eat that, I have this problem, and now I feel scared of eating that, and that makes me feel anxious. Or I was told to cut out all of these things, and now I feel anxious when I eat these things, or when I have to go out for dinner, and things like that. But also people in general, we have because of the, the society we live in and the way that we live now, we do generally have very complicated relationships with food and our body, particularly as women. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I do a lot of work on in, in different aspects because it's, it has such a, such a profound impact, particularly things like social media and all of the scaremongering we see about diets and food and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, gosh, that's a whole... We could do a whole podcast just on that, I'm sure. (laughs) we absolutely could, You know, and I think, to be honest as well, I sometimes have to... I guess I'm thinking from my frame of reference, and I think there's a spectrum, isn't there? And often I think there's two ends of the spectrum that kind of get focused on. So there might be one end of the spectrum where somebody, you know, they might say they've got ultra-processed food. You know, all of their diet is ultra-processed food. might be somebody who has chronic health condition. It might be someone who's really struggling with their physical and mental health, and that's kind of one end of the extreme. Then we've got probably, like... 90 percent of the population and then the other end of the extreme i think there's probably the kind of elite high performance the athletes the you know one percent gains trying to optimize and improve absolutely every single thing and unfortunately i feel like most of the language most of the articles the reading the headlines they're kind of speaking to one of those groups and so maybe because of the world that i'm in you know being in the world of wellness and health and fitness and being somebody myself who you know I'm in that community of of runners and triathletes and people who are extremely fit and healthy, they're trying to optimize. And I, myself included, I will hold my hands up and say, sometimes you can be neurotic about, you know, you're looking at, okay, this um, supplement says it's going to do that, or you're trying to improve your resting heart rate by this much, or you're you're trying to optimize your recovery and everything's just trying to get that 1% better. And as much as that can, of course, I guess have some upside. I do think that the downside is that, the kind of normal or I don't even know what the word normal is but you know the idea that everything has got to be you know, looking at every single thing that you eat as fuel and as how is this going to optimize my body and my sleep and I don't know where's the enjoyment where's the real life where's the flexibility where's the freedom and I sometimes think yeah, yeah. there's like, like I said these two extremes but most people are probably neither of those so where do they get their information from yeah. and what what you know how is it helpful for them?
1: Yeah, and you know, you're so right. And one of the great examples of this is fasting. So we've seen loads of people um, be very religious more recently, and actually, maybe more men than women being really religious about intermittent fasting, and that meaning that they're no longer eating with their families, they won't go out for dinner with their friends, they won't, you know, have any sort of social eating engagement, because their fasting window has been set, and they've decided that's what they're going to do forever. And because of longevity, or because of performance, whatever it might be, And of course that that really limits your quality of life and i think where we try to control everything what we lose a lot of is actually listening to our bodies Mm -hmm. and understanding what we need um, in that moment because if you think take women for example our energy needs fluctuate throughout the month our nutritional needs fluctuate throughout the month but if we're really rigid about things we lose that ability to listen to our bodies and we lose that intrinsic thing that we've got which is actually your body telling you what you need to do and what you need and how much energy you need that day for example so you're completely right about that, and I think one of the problems that we have with um, with the way that c- nutrition and health information is communicated is is that the research, the medical research that comes out, is all done primarily on medical conditions. So research funding is given based on you know prevention or, or management of dementia, for example, but that really doesn't encompass the people who. just noticing that they're not as sharp as they used to be or they've got a bit of brain fog this brain fog term is not something that's really been researched Mm. because it's a an experience of healthy people Mm. that's frustrating for them but it's not it's not a medical thing right it's not something we can categorize and medicalize and so there's not really really any research going on into these day-to-day frustrations and symptoms that happen to people everyday people not as you say people with disease or people in the top one percent. and this is where kind of the biohacking community come in And and they kind of preach about these very elitist things that people should be doing, could be doing in order to optimise things. And again, you're completely right. The the middle section, those who are generally healthy but want to be healthier or those who are focused on health optimization and and prevention of of illness. We're not really serving them. Mm. And obviously we try to as dietitians and nutritionists, people in public health spaces. But it is difficult because if you go to a GP and say, well, I'm well now, but I want to have some blood tests to see whether I you know what's going on for me they're not going to do it there's no money for that at the moment especially in the NHS so that leaves that that group quite vulnerable to predatory people who are trying to sell products services things that aren't actually going to help Tests, that kind of thing and we've seen an absolute explosion of health testing commercial level health testing over the last few years to serve those people and I understand that there is a Mm. a need for it and a desire for it and there is potentially a place for it but I'm not sure we're getting that balance right at the moment in terms of how that's being portrayed to people and the actual benefits or or lack of benefits uh, which are there.
0: Okay, Sophie, I want to get into this because this was not in my questions. This was not in my prep. However, I feel like I have to get into this with you for two reasons. One, because I want to understand maybe, as you said, there might be some use case. Maybe I want to understand like where I'm getting this right, where I'm getting this wrong. But both my husband and I, I feel like we're both kind of in the camp that's like, oh my gosh, this is great. All of these kind of preventative, potentially preventative at-home testing, you know, make things available to the masses. This is amazing. And, and I'll tell you my kind of, I guess, maybe uninformed uh, viewpoint on this is that, yes, I'm someone who's currently healthy and well. That's that's a blessing, you know, other than the fact I've just, I've just actually been ill for a week. But, you know, generally I'm healthy and well. However, I have experienced in my life, you know, either family members or friends who've been totally healthy living their life and then bam something you know yeah. quite extreme has happened to them from uh, in terms of their health which has changed their lives i've also experienced uh with my grandmother i experienced her being very very healthy and fit physically you know she had a very strong body she could run for the bus she was playing bingo she was going to church but when she uh, developed dementia and she also had um diabetes as well but when she developed dementia i kind of saw how quickly the onset just essentially destroyed her you know like her mind and her body was still strong, but, you know, so that changed her, her quality of life very, very quickly. And I suppose I've just always had a real interest, you know, hence the, the work that I do, but a real interest in in the body and health and wellness and, and whole holistic approach, all the things that we can do. And I think I've kind of just thought, well, if there are things that you can do to maybe prevent the onset or maybe to lessen the impact or to prevent, and I know we can't control everything and anything could happen tomorrow, but I sometimes think we just walk around and we don't know what's going on inside our bodies. And for example, you mentioned about poo and asking all those questions and some people I genuinely, you must find this. They wouldn't have a clue. They would not be able to tell you how many yeah. times do you poo? What's your poo like? What they wouldn't be able to tell you because they probably just go to the toilet, flush it. They don't even look. And it's the same. I think with so many body functions, some people we women if they're not tracking their cycle or if people don't know so much we just kind of go oh I don't really know and so I think I've always been like we have to know more we have to empower ourselves with knowledge of our own bodies some people probably don't even know their own blood type you know like Mm -hmm. if we don't know if we know more information about our cars and what's underneath the hood of our cars than we do what's underneath the hood of our own body I am in. I think I'm a little bit maybe too far where I think actually we should do you know a yearly blood test or we should do a stool sample and we should get these at Home tests and do all the things and saliva things, and I just want to do all the tests, get all the data. But then what do you do with that data? What do you do if something's yeah. uh anomaly and a red flag and it says, Oh, you're really deficient in this, or your function of this isn't good? Or what do you do if there's a big change? So there's so much in here. i guess I should ask you a question. My question would be, <laughs> my question would be. With the at-home testing, with this preventative thing, with healthy, well people like myself spending a lot of time and money on these products, is this good? a good news story? Is this going to make us potentially healthier and live longer? Or am I neurotic and wasting my money? <laughs> you can tell <laughs> Look, me the I truth. Think there's, so, there's so much in there and I think it's really that
1: there's so many different aspects to it to think about. So if we start with things like, um, I was having a chat with some colleagues, colorectal surgeons the other day, and, and the, the sort of uh, case was presented that somebody had had one of these, um, had a full panel of blood tests done by a commercial company, testing for things that we would never test for in the NHS because we're not gonna do anything about it and there's no treatment for things that you flag up in this way. And one of the things that came up for them was a tumor marker was raised. So a marker for cancer in the body. This patient then went to their GP, had every scan under the sun, and nobody could find any evidence of any cancer. That patient then has to just live with this idea mm-hmm. that maybe cancer is growing in their body. No one's gonna give you chemotherapy for a random tumor marker that's thrown up that they can't find the cancer for. There's different chemotherapy treatments for different areas of your body and different types of cancers. You can't find it, you can't treat it. and. That's an, an example, an extreme example of what can happen when we engage in these commercial tests where you then have this information. But that commercial testing company is not going to do anything with that information for you. They're not going to treat the cancer that they say they found. They so just send you ins- off to your GP.
0: So in that instance, so to interrupt, in that instance, would you say, well, potentially retest? It could be an anomaly. Or are you actually saying, you know, that the test is right? But unfortunately, you now just have this knowledge of something in your body without really anything to do you can do about it because surely you still want to know what's going on in your body even yeah. if even if that isn't good news
1: i mean i think there's there's two sides to it isn't there one is that actually if if you've got no symptoms and you're otherwise healthy and there's no issues and no one can find that cancer that's supposedly there obviously they should retest they should double check and all those kinds of things but if all of the best tests that we have available within modern medicine cannot find the cause of that raised tumour marker in that patient. That that person now has to live with that knowledge and it's terrifying for them because their belief will be at some point in the near future, I'm going to end up with cancer and no one can find it and no one's helping me and they're going to feel so anxious. And their only real option and the, the sort of conclusion was, well, they'll probably end up in a screening programme where they have an MRI and or a CT every six months, every three months, somebody will decide and they'll just be monitored in that way. And, and the, the reality of that is that this person who's had this test on the you know f- for weeks before their next mri scan and for then as soon as they're waiting for the results it's going to be terrifying for them their health anxiety is going to be absolutely through the roof their life is going to be limited by this perceived knowledge that something is wrong in their body but nobody can find it and i think that speaks to quite a lot of these t- types of tests that we can have and one of the things that we get a lot of problems with is these in- at home intolerance tests Uh, obviously within my work that's really relevant and it's important to say that none of the at home intolerance tests have any scientific credibility whatsoever so these are food intolerance tests we have a normal reaction to food which shows up in our blood and what you'll find is that all of the foods that you eat typically and regularly in your diet are flagged up as foods that you're intolerant to there's literally no there's no evidence that this is any problem in your body, it's normal pathology, it's normal body function. And even so far as to say that the Advertising Standards Authority last year said that York tests weren't allowed to call themselves intolerance tests anymore or pretend that they could diagnose intolerances because there's no evidence that they can on their website now it still says all the same thing but there's a tiny little asterisk and at the bottom of the website it says uh, we actually can't diagnose food and in- food intolerances sorry about that so it's, <laughs> but people come with these it's 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 a, it's a big problem and now there's a load of new ones popped up with lots of celebrities advertising them where they're doing hair samples and all sorts of things again no evidence that they're of any benefit whatsoever and actually what they do is they make people think oh, i can't eat any of these like best case scenario somebody reads that report and goes well how the hell am i going to cut out all these foods from their diet and just puts it in the bin. Worst case scenario is people follow it to the T, end up on an incredibly restrictive diet. And Adrian, like I've seen multiple patients who've ended up in hospital with horrific nutritional deficiencies after following these things that they've been given, which have got no evidence whatsoever so there's a massive issue there there is a huge kettle of fish in the genetic testing world where people have been told that they've got um, you know the, the risk of breast cancer and gone to a private surgeon and had a double double mastectomy when in reality they didn't need that and it oh, wasn't necessary gosh. and you know it, it's a it's a world of problems and then when we think about I know that you've done some stuff with continuous blood glucose monitoring haven't mm. you which is interesting right it's interesting if you're having your hand held through that with a clinician and it's it's useful to you mm. But what it's doing is pathologizing these normal body functions. Your blood glucose is supposed to fluctuate up and down through the day. Mm. And as long as it's not going outside the normal parameters, you've got literally nothing to worry about. Yep. But what we have now is these kind of influences and people in that space saying, well, I ate a banana and look at my blood glucose now and, and thinking it's terrible. When in reality, if you ate, it's supposed you know, to if you go ate a stick up, yeah. of butter, it's supposed to go up. If you ate a stick of butter, your blood glucose would stay the same. Mm. But if you ate an apple, it would go up. But people's perception then is, well, I shouldn't eat apples, I should eat butter. Right? And this, That's the yeah, problem. I, yeah.
0: And I can really clearly see <laughs> that problem, especially, you know, this conversation around CGMs. As you say, I work with a CGM company and I feel like for two reasons, mm one like I said the preventative thing around okay understanding where my body's at now and understanding you know what what yeah what's going on how is it impacted etc two I think that education piece as you said like I feel like I'm quite knowledgeable when it comes to you know what metabolic health is and so as you said understanding that yes I know that my blood glucose should go up and it should come back down and and when I exercise for example my blood blood glucose should spike because my muscles need glycogen. I'm running. Mm -hmm. So I think understanding that, and I think sharing that education and information, hopefully for some people is useful. But again, I think, Coming back to, I suppose, solutions, because I think that's the thing, isn't it? Okay, the problems and the tests. What's the solution? So what for someone like myself, then, who, as I said, you kind of got that picture now of like, okay, these are the things I want to understand and this is why. So what's the solution, I suppose? What would your recommendation be, Sophie, to say these are the things actually that you can do that are useful? Yeah, and I think that's unfortunately it's not glamorous. And when I I read lots
1: of these reports from personalised nutrition companies, for example, Uh, that people have been given and they all say the same thing normal healthy balanced eating manage your stress sleep enough drink enough water it really is that that's the best thing you can do for your long-term health is maintain a healthy balanced relationship with food and your body and take care of your body in the best way that you can with the you know with what you have available and I think when we the more we commercialise health with testing and with products and everything else, the more people who don't have the budget for that kind of thing will think, well, I I can't be healthy, so I might as well keep smoking, drinking too much and just eating McDonald's or whatever it might be. And obviously I'm being facetious about that and giving a bad example, but essentially it it either makes people panic and worry about not being able to do enough, or it makes people go, well, I can't do it anyway, so I might as well not bother. Mm. And and the truth is there's brilliant guidelines out there about prevention of dementia. There's brilliant guidelines out there that are very heavily evidence-based in prevention of diabetes and prevention of cancers. All of that information is out there and it's all the same. It's balanced healthy eating, plenty of plants in your diet, being careful of processed foods, drinking enough water, not smoking, not having alcohol, not having too much alcohol, these things that we all know mm. But because we think, oh, I've paid for this test, and now this is personalised to me, the outcome will be almost exactly the same for everybody. Eat more plants, drink more water, you know, look after your body in 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 the way that we've been taught to by our mums, you know.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting because I, as I say, I'm I'm not so much for or against. It's more about this. I think the word personalised is important. I think that's something that I kind of do think is important I'm always like well it has to be personalized you know the idea that a lot of things you know as we know in the medical history has been tested only on men or people sometimes yeah. say well these yeah. products or these you know medical um uh, surveys and research it's often been done on on white men and obviously you know or, or even just on white people and so I think sometimes that's as well where maybe it does play into people's kind of well hyper personalization this is for you and I think there's a real power in that. That's certainly something that spoke to me because it made me think, well, actually, if this is my body, it's going to be completely different to, for example, my husband's who is, you know, a white man and his all of his yeah. data, all of his health degree, everything's completely different. So if something just says, okay, this is the same for everyone, that's where I think I'm sceptical because I kind of think, well, we're, none of us are the same. Surely we need things yeah, to be personalised, you know?
1: I hear that. And I think that there is in some ways space for that. But if you compare your recommendations off the back of personalised nutrition interventions or or screening, you'll notice that they're all pretty similar. Ultimately, there may be a few slight differences, but ultimately they'll all be fairly similar in terms of what they're telling you to do. And that's where people like me and my colleagues would say, well, you know, you could have come to us and and we would have personalised your treatment plan based on what you're currently eating, what body type you have, what your race is, what your ethnicity is, all those kinds of things without having to do the expensive testing and that's kind of what we've been trained to do and that's what our job is right but it's the idea that it's personalized but then the outcome is actually pretty generic and I think that that's the thing that we find frustrating in the industry because it creates again this kind of two-tier health system where it's for the haves and have nots and if you haven't got it then you might as well not bother which is kind of what people feel and then obviously within the personalized nutrition space there's then a lot of bashing of generic government guidelines and things like that in order to get people to buy their tests Jeez. and that really is unhelpful for people who can't afford them because ultimately those government guidelines are there because they are highly evidence-based and written by people who have the best possible knowledge of epidemiology and what's what's in the literature
0: sure yeah Well, wow. fascinating stuff <laughs> to get started visit plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss so I did want to talk to you about supplements <clears throat> and this is a big mm-hmm. one I know that you've worked with you know creating supplement um, supplements and I guess where to start with this, I think it can be quite a polarized conversation. Some people swear by their supplements. I have two friends in particular who take, you know, a handful of different things every day. They have done for years and both of them to be fair are like, you know, in good nick. And I, I always think of them because they just, yeah, they just swear by their supplements. You know, they would never miss a day. Then there's other people that just kind of laugh and say, oh, it's a waste of money. You know, all these products that's being sold to you, they don't do anything, you know, throw it in the bin. So I'm gonna focus on two main points here. Number one is gonna be, how do we know if we need supplements in the first place? Which ones do we need? How do we know? And number two is if we are shopping for supplements, what should we be looking for? What's important, cost, ingredients, shiny label, etc. So number one, if we need them, how do we know? Yeah, good question. So
1: the thing to say is that everybody needs vitamin D, especially in the winter. And it's the darker your skin is, the more you need vitamin D and the more likely you are to need it all year round. So um Taking vitamin D all year round is a good idea for most people most of the time. And, you know, we want to take it alongside some vitamin K so it gets to the right place in our body. That's relatively important now. We understand more about that. Um, We also think about things like omega-3s in in terms of it being fairly generic advice. So unless you're eating two or three portions of oily fish a week, you're probably going to benefit from additional omega-3s. And that's specifically EPA and DHA, the ones that are made from seeds that contain an ALA. They're not particularly useful. So... EPA and DHA, if you're not eating loads of oily fish. And then, of course, if you are pregnant or trying to conceive, then folic acid is incredibly important for preventing birth defects. So those are kind of our public health level guidance that we would say kind of goes for everybody. Then if we get into some minutiae, if we say, for example, if you cut out dairy, you really need to think about what nutrients you've taken out of your diet if you've removed dairy. So dairy is a really important source of iodine, we obviously have a really important source of calcium we all know that it contains some vitamin d some of the year it also contains things like magnesium and other things so if you cut out dairy then you need to be thinking about what you need to be getting back into your diet and how that can look for you and therefore supplementation can be really useful if you are reducing or removing any other animal products from your diet you probably want to be thinking about b vitamins and iron If you've got any kind of, and perhaps let's just park people with disease processes because I think that's less relevant to your audience, but also it can get super complicated. But ultimately when you're a healthy person that's looking to optimize your nutrition through supplements, the first thing to think about is what do I eat regularly? And what am I therefore not probably not getting enough of? Mm. And if that feels difficult and you're not sure and you, you want some reassurance, come and see a dietitian. We can assess your diet and look at nutrient qualities and understand what you may or may not be getting enough of and therefore recommend some supplements for you if that's what you need. Or maybe it's just some small dietary tweaks. Like, for example, eggs are such a great source of loads of different nutrients, almost all the nutrients we need. So actually, do you just need a few more eggs in your diet every week? And we as dietitians are very much a, have a food first approach to things. Mm. So, unless my patients are like morally massively averse to including animal products or whatever else, we can work around that in terms of, uh, you know, uh, adding more nutrient dense foods into the diet to make up for the bits that you might be missing. Okay. But ultimately, there are plenty of people who do benefit from supplements and that do need supplements. And we all should be having vitamin D certainly through the winter months.
0: Yes, that's one that I've been, um taking for the last maybe 2 months actually i think two two different doctors have said that they said actually i don't take this i don't take that but they said the ones i take myself vitamin D and both dark-skinned people. Um, I have a spray mm-hmm. one now, you know, it's like a spray on the tongue situation. Mm-hmm. Easy, don't forget to do it. Um, yeah. Okay, so that's some, mostly, you know, talking about vitamin vitamins and of course, there are lots of supplements that are not vitamins, that are other things. So for example, this is one, maybe going off topic again, ashwanga. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but this is ashwagandha ashwagandha, yes. thank you ashwagandha. Yes. So this is one that I hear, maybe it's just right now in my friendship group. A lot of my friends, female friends, Friends, hormone health, you know, people going into perimenopause, all these things. Ashwagandha, that's the one, that is the supplement. It's changed my life. What, you know, again, is this, okay, anecdotal exp- evidence is still evidence, but it's only based on that one person's feeling. I don't really know what ashwagandha is, a plant, it's a root, isn't it? A, a root of a yeah, plant? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So yeah. is that something, for example, that you would actually need to consult a doctor or a dietitian first? Or is it a case, actually, you can buy one, you can try it and see for yourself?
1: Yeah, so we think ashwagandha is relatively safe. It's come into, I guess, Western medicine relatively recently. And medicine isn't even really the right term. It's come into our consciousness in the West more recently. And that's primarily because we've had such a huge problem with mental health. And ashwagandha, we think, works on neurotransmitters to help you to feel less stressed and less anxious and therefore it can be applied to sleep it could be applied to you know when your hormones get more disruptive and m- disrupted in your midlife as women it could apply to that kind of thing where you feel more anxious and worried about things so i think there's a role for things like ashwagandha and other herbal extracts as well and certainly you know i talk to people about them in my practice and of course my patients come to me and say should i take this should i be taking this all the time so it's worth us being up to date with these kinds of things but ashwagandha is potentially a useful thing that hasn't been big Kind of cross sectional studies that are to the level of evidence that we would say to put them in the NICE guidelines, for example, that inform GP practice, doesn't mean it's not worth people trying it and seeing what happens. And it's a relatively low risk intervention with all of the herbal extracts and anything else, if you are taking any other prescribed medication, just run it past a pharmacist or your GP before you start taking anything, just because some herbal extracts and things can interfere with prescribed medications in terms of absorption and efficacy. So that's the only caveat really is is check with somebody who knows about drugs particularly pharmacists it's quite useful because you just pop in and ask them if they know if there's any interactions but otherwise i would say you know generally worth a try and seeing how you feel and everyone will respond slightly differently to these things we are all different as previously discussed and everyone will respond slightly differently so worth a try and i think one of the mistakes we make with I guess particularly with herbal extracts but also with supplements is I think people take them and they want to feel better immediately or they (laughs) want to feel different immediately when in reality most of these things need at least a couple of weeks to see if you're going to feel a difference if not a couple of months Mm. so just give it a good go if you're going to give something a try and don't be tempted to switch between one and then the next one and the next one and get a cupboard full of supplements that you're not taking because ultimately the only supplements that work are the ones that you take
0: yeah okay that's really useful really helpful and the second part of my question of course was about once we know okay maybe I need vitamin D maybe I'm going to try this or that and we go out shopping or maybe we go scrolling what are the things to look for because again holding my hands up sometimes if it's a recommendation from a friend it might be you know 69 pounds for 30 capsules and I'm thinking wow that's expensive but then I often you know unfortunately I'm in a fortunate position if I want to spend you know 70 quid on supplements then that's something I can do obviously not everyone can but also it's like is that any better than a 6.99 off the shelf in the supermarket because if they're the same product but with just a different label then actually you're just wasting you know a lot of money there so yeah what are the things I suppose we should be looking out for or or looking at when we turn to the back to the ingredients uh, to help us make that choice
1: yeah so it's always really tricky because there is real variation in the quality And what we would call bioavailability of different nutrients. So there are certain nutrient preparations that are cheap and therefore they go into cheaper products, but they're not as bioavailable. Your body can't use them in the same way. They maybe have to be converted into an active form in your body, relying on another bodily process. They may just not be able to be absorbed very well in your gut, for example. So there are lots of different forms of nutrients and it's about finding your priorities, really, I would say. So if you said to me, um, I just, I'm well and I'm healthy, but I just want to take like a good A to Z multivitamin just as a bit of an insurance policy, buy one that's in your price bracket and don't worry about it too much because you probably just need a little bit of a top up. If you said to me, I'm completely vegan and therefore I need... You know, I'm going to say, OK, well, you definitely need to invest in your B vitamins. They need to be really good quality and really bioavailable. And you probably need a good source of iron as well. And you'll definitely need some amigas. So it's about kind of investing in the things that are a priority for you and your body, if that makes sense. And that is difficult because people don't necessarily know. We don't get taught how anything about nutrition at school let alone later on down the line. And now it's and the world of the nutrition is super confusing. So it's about kind of prioritising the things that you think are, are really important in terms of where you invest your money. The super high-end supplements now. When I look at the labels, I think, well, what you've just put all of these expensive branded ingredients in here. Some of them are uppers, some of them are downers. What are you expecting people to... Benefit? I can't understand what your rationale is. And that's because a lot of these things are put together by marketing people and not mm. by nutrition experts who can actually put a... a, a a product together which is going to have the impact that you're looking for it to have I think there's lots of things on the market which is just like a high a high ticket price looks beautiful but actually just a small amount of nutrition scrutiny and you can go well this is not worth taking in terms of labels, I think the thing to look out for is if there's full of if there's lots of bulking agents and lots of fillers and additives and things like that, that's the sort of thing to to try and avoid. And I appreciate some people struggle with capsules, but gummies are really not worth anyone's money. Mm. Gummies are mostly just filler, binder, sweeteners, colourings, flavourings, those kinds of things. It's really difficult to get a meaningful amount of anything useful into a gummy. Um, that perhaps is an application for children.
0: That's good to know, isn't it? Because they've become very popular, as you say, like health, uh, hair, gummy, nail, gummy, this gummy, collagen, gummy, all this, gummies everywhere. Um, But as you say, for children, I think a lot of parents might probably buy the the chewy, you know, uh, Peppa Pig or or Avengers or whatever it is. So are you saying that for kids, those ones aren't great either? They should have the little... Yeah, I think there's an application for gummies for children and I would say, you know, again, if
1: your child is a really fussy eater and they're hardly eating anything or they have any kind of medical condition, go and see a dietitian and get them to recommend a nutrition, like a a vitamin product specifically tailored for them. If they're just a child who sometimes doesn't want to eat the vegetables, then give them a gummy vitamin and you'll know that you're topping up the extra bits and obviously if it's vitamin D, just if it's in a gummy and that's the only way they'll take it, fine. There is droppers there is effervescent vitamin products and you know we can debate whether we should be teaching children to eat sweets in vitamin form or not but that's kind of by the by ultimately children need less nutrients so they fit a little bit better into a gummy than they do into than they do for adults let's say but yeah i think it's it's a complicated world and it's not super transparent and one of the things that's really important to remember is that literally anyone can start a vitamin company with no nutrition knowledge or education and they can just go to the manufacturers and say, can you put X amount of this in and X amount of this? And the manufacturers might say, well, why don't we put a bit of this and a bit of this in as well? And then you end up with a product that's being sold by an influencer or whoever else who actually has no idea what they're selling or what the benefits may or may not be. Um, so just have a little bit of uh, you know caution around that. So the things that I would say to look out for if you're looking at products is check the label. If it's full of fillers, binders, things that aren't actually nutrients, then perhaps that's not your best quality one to choose. Try to choose from established brands, or choose from um, when you go on the company's website. Look at who's in the team, who's designing them, who's there, and what are they? What's their focus and interest, and are they actually experts in the field of what they're trying to do? It's not easy for people and I think we the, the market is so saturated and on Amazon there are companies that pop up and sell products for two weeks and then disappear again and mm. there's lots of products being sold on Amazon that aren't legal to sell in the UK and things like that. So it, it's a difficult thing for people to get their heads around. One of the things I would discourage people from doing is going to like a high street supplement company without having in their head what they're gonna buy and that they're not gonna be upsold a million things before you we'll end up <laughs> coming out with a shopping there. basket.
0: We have all absolutely. been
1: absolutely but I, yeah, we've all you'll been end up there. with a shopping basket full of stuff and a wallet that's much lighter and actually, you know, chance of you taking all of those things are pretty slim, right? And those people are they say they've got nutrition qualifications. Anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. So just be uh, aware of that and have a skeptical eye on things i'm not saying those t- shops aren't useful because you might want to pick up some vitamin d but ultimately you want to <laughs> just be careful about taking advice
0: <laughs> everything else basically vitamin d everything else in the shop this is brilliant this is absolutely brilliant i knew that it would be you're know, always so candid and honest which i really appreciate and i'm also being this trying to be the same because you know i'm not just because i host this podcast like i said hands up guilty as charged there are so many of these things that i fall into and i just think i don't know i think we all do and the placebo effect i yeah. know the placebo effect is real I've Obviously, I've read enough studies about it. You can give somebody water, but if you tell them that it's this super elixir of, you know, enhancing performance, they're gonna run yeah. faster. And they will because they've had this drink. So sometimes I just like it. Sometimes I just honestly yeah. I'm upset. Sometimes I just take it and I like it because I'm like, Oh, this is gonna give me nice hair. Like I'm just like yeah. and I'm not I'm embarrassed, but I'm also being honest. Yeah, no,
1: but who cares? I think sleep is a great example of that, right? There's the, the placebo effect with sleep products is so strong because mm. If you take something and you believe you're going to have a good night's sleep and you go to bed all peaceful, oh, I'm going to sleep so well tonight, you're going to have a nice night's sleep. Whereas if you go to bed thinking, oh, God, I'm not going to sleep and I've got to get up early tomorrow and all those things, of course you're not going to sleep as well. So... Ultimately, if it works, yep. who cares, Yeah, exactly, right?
0: who cares? And <laughs> not to, sort of, like you said, not if you're like spending lots of money on, on things, but Life is dangerous, if yeah. it's dangerous, but I think this is, yeah, sometimes it gets a bit heavy, doesn't it? And everything's so serious. Yeah. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, but it feels nice. And actually this is also any parents listening, placebos work for kids. And so for example, my stepdaughter, she she's much better sleeper now, but she used to be, you know, going to bed and going to sleep was a bit of an issue for a while. And she'd always, you know, that would be the time when she'd wanna talk about things and, you know, worries or climate anxiety, things that, you know, I didn't want to kind of just say, get to bed so essentially I started a couple of things which I was like one for example you know I got sent a a box of products from a company and there was a sleep spray in there and so I said to her oh wow this is you know this really amazing sleep spray we're going to spray it spray it in your room we're going to spray it near your pillow it really relaxes the body it's like a spa." she was like oh wow this is nice so I gave her that then the second one was I said to her I think I gave her like this little forehead massage you know like a facial like little very short you know 30 seconds 90 seconds and I said oh when you massage your head in this way before you go to sleep it relaxes you and relaxes and calms your mind and you have a really good sleep so she was like okay thanks so she did that and also breathing through the nose you know breathing through the nose out through the nose slow breaths all this so that was it sleep spray little forehead massage some nasal breathing this whole thing took about six minutes she went to sleep she didn't come back out of her bedroom. She had a really good night's sleep. And the next day, she said to me, I slept so well. Thank you so much. She was basically just like, yeah. oh my God. And, um, and she did, which is good. You know, she had that nice wind down. Um, and then for a while, of course, she was like, it's bedtime. Time for my massage. <laughs> was <literally> like She's <laughs> onto something. But it sounds silly, but that like kind of six minutes, and it could be, you know, different for, for, for different children, different ages. You know, she's nine. So she kind of understood the, some of the things I was telling her. But I wasn't just saying go to bed or, or this this is going to make you yeah. sleep I was actually explaining and saying oh this is why and when we do this it calms our body and actually yeah if it's a placebo I'm sure some of those things as I said probably did help to down regulate but some of it is just a different attitude and mindset going into bed that says oh I'm going to sleep now in this you know lovely state and it really helped and so I think sometimes I know a lot of parents when they can can be quite frustrating with your children are troubled sleepers if they get up a lot if they you know especially after a busy day it's kind of like oh you know it's can be um people don't always have a lot of patience at the end of the day so i think sometimes placebos with kids especially with sleep it it works the winner yeah for the win (laughs) absolutely right, so gosh, there's so many things, as I said, we could talk all day, but I wanna bring it back to one thing that I wanted to discuss with you, which is food and mood. So food Mm -hmm. and mood, you kind of alluded to this already, that the kind of fundamentals around eating a balanced diet managing our stress, getting regular exercise and getting good sleep. That's really where we need to focus, isn't it? Like let's do that food and mood. But of course there, we do see headlines. We do see things around, okay, if you have low mood, if you have anxiety, if you have depression, then actually eating these certain foods you know the gut brain axis. The gut and the brain are connected. You can like eat yourself happy. I've seen these these headlines around serotonin and dopamine lives in the gut, and suddenly it's like, oh, if I eat these things, it, you know, is my mood going to change? And also, if I'm eating all those things and I still have low mood, what do I do now? So yeah, could you maybe yeah. give us a bit of a one hundred and one on the gut brain axis and food and mood?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So your brain and the neurotransmitters that impact your brain, so for example, things like serotonin, melatonin for your sleep, all of these things, they require B vitamins as precursors to their function. So in order to create serotonin, we need some B vitamins in our diet, and as we've kind of moved into this sort of way of thinking about reducing animal products in our diet, which is obviously really beneficial for the planet and importance for some people morally and ethically, we find that there's much more B vitamin deficiency in the kind of, in this population we're talking to, Adrian, this kind of, they're, they're healthy, but they're not optimised in terms of their, their, the way that they feel. So we did some work with one of the companies I worked for where we looked at B vitamin deficiencies in like the free living no disease population and we find that B vitamin deficiency is actually much more common, even among those who do eat some animal products in their diet. So B vitamins are super important for your brain health and your mental health and your mood in particular. So if you are someone who struggles with mood and you're reducing plant if you if you notice that you've reduced the animal products in your diet, you might want to think about taking a good quality B vitamin complex. And they're cheap and readily available so it's worth doing. Omega-3 is the other one. So your brain in an ideal world is about a third of it's made from fats from fish or fish oils or algae oil if you're a vegan and um, for the vast majority of people that's not the case and it's a bit like having a third of the bricks of your house made from polystyrene it kind of looks okay but under a strong wind it's going to struggle and that's the same you know when we are under a lot of stress and pressure or we're feeling particularly anxious about something in particular we've not got enough amigas in our body we're going to struggle a bit with that mentally and that can be more difficult for people vitamin d is important for your brain health we've talked about that a lot so there are some like really important bits of building blocks of good mood and brain health that are super super important for us antioxidants are important for brain health otherwise we end up with too much oxidative stress in the brain which is difficult and when we are stressed and when we're anxious and when we drink lots of caffeine or we drink more alcohol we use up more of these essential nutrients so there's this kind of knock on all this sort of spiral effect where we're we're under a lot of pressure we're maybe drinking a bit more coffee because we're not sleeping as well because we're more stressed and anxious at bedtime then we maybe drink a bit more alcohol to try and relax in the evening the stress and pressure builds and builds and then we usually and typically when we're more stressed and anxious and under pressure we often end up making our diet quality reduces right we maybe become more reliant on takeaways or on processed foods when we're walking around we're grabbing a sandwich rather than maybe taking some soup from home or something like that all of these things have these little nudge effects and then before we know it we're in this kind of perfect storm of nutrient deficiencies where people can start to really feel the the impact of that in their life and the menopause is really like common time for that to happen especially where women are generally at that sort of age in their lives now so what we need to do is just try to counteract that a little bit and think about those b vitamins think about amigas think about vitamin d and try and keep yourself on an even keel with those kinds of things and you know it's all well and good us saying we'll just eat better when in reality under those circumstances it's really difficult for people mm. one of the things that's always super important to say is that if you are on prescribed medication for anxiety or depression you can't eat your way out of that and there's that you know you can definitely improve your diet and work on it and then think about maybe speaking to your doctor about reducing your medications, but ultimately don't stop your your prescribed medications and then just think you can change your diet and fix it overnight. Because these things also take time and it doesn't happen immediately. So, uh, and the other thing I should say while I'm on that track is nobody should think Oh, it's my fault that I've got this problem because I didn't eat well, I didn't look after myself. For some people it just is chemical and genetic and it's difficult. Mm-hmm. The other piece that we're talking about here is the gut-brain axis. So your gut and your brain are really, connect in the body they're connected chemically via the neurotransmitters that are produced in your gut and neurotransmitters like GABA which is the one that switches on to suppress anxiety and and, and feelings of worry and stress and things like that GABA is a really important neurotransmitter it's essentially like the one that says don't worry about it that's the one we need lots of and your gut produces that and your gut produces serotonin but we're not quite sure how that crosses into the brain or if that crosses into the brain yet but the fact that they share such an important neurotransmitter is really relevant and something that's being heavily researched at the moment so they're connected chemically they're connected hormonally by the hpa axis the brain the hippocampus the pituitary and the adrenal glands they're talking to each other through those all the time and the gut helps to set how much cortisol you release in response to stress Mm. so if you haven't got such great gut health you're likely to struggle a bit more with stress and anxiety and things like that and then they're also connected Um, physically via the vagus nerve which I'm sure you speak to your audience about a lot of the time in terms of vagal tone and trying to take care of like getting yourself into that nice rest and digest state and things like that so our gut and our brain are very heavily connected and the big kind of connector is these bacteria that live in our colon our microbiome and really the most important thing to remember about your microbiome is they like to eat lots of plants so
0: Mm -hmm. making
1: sure that we get plenty of plants and variety of plants in the diet is really important we have billions of different types of bacteria in the colon and they all like to eat slightly different things some like this is a very poor example some like to eat pears some like to eat whole grains some like nuts some like seeds so having really good variety and some like herbs and spices and other things good variety of plants in your diet is really key to a healthy flourishing diverse microbiome and diversity of that microbiome is key to your to your health And just on this note, we have lots of obviously commercially available microbiome tests now. And ultimately, the advice that you get off the back of that is going to be the same for most people. Eat more, different plants, manage your stress, drink enough water, careful with alcohol, careful with ultra processed foods. It's the same advice that we would give to anybody. So just working on that diversity means increasing the plant, different types of plants in your diet. And sometimes I think that can feel quite inaccessible. But in reality, if you have like some porridge, chuck some cheer seeds in there chuck some mixed seeds in there get some frozen mixed berries in there and before you know it you've got like 20 different plants in your breakfast and you're off to a really really great start so it feels difficult but it's really not when we put it into practical terms
0: yeah that is really really useful and helpful so thank you sophie this whole conversation has just been packed hopefully people are gonna maybe listen to it twice get a pen and make some notes So we couldn't conclude the episode without, of course, talking about the power hour. Very simple. The first hour of each day and what people choose to do with that hour. I find fascinating, Uh, you know, whether it's, an hour to read, an hour to walk, an hour to listen to a podcast, whatever it is, or also what people, what things people tend to avoid in the first hour of the day as well. Things that we don't necessarily want to come into our mind, into our life before we've even, you know, had a coffee. So Sophie, can you tell us typically, what does the first hour of your day include?
1: So I am the opposite of a morning person. I really struggle in the mornings. And the thing that this is my worst case scenario in the morning. Is that I have to get up as soon as my alarm goes off, and then get in the shower and get out the door. Like that's my worst. Rushing in the morning is just terrible for me. So I generally start work at ten, and that's partly because I walk the dog and that kind of stuff in the morning, which I'll talk about. But for me, if I've got to get up at, if I've got to leave the house at nine, for example, to get to clinic for ten, I need to get up about half six. I need to be. My alarm is going half six. I might snooze for a minute. Then I'm going to get up and I'm going to have to say to myself, you don't have to do anything. just going to go and sit on the sofa and drink a coffee. Don't worry. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to do anything. So I'm coaching myself out of bed. I'll make myself a coffee. I'll sit on the sofa. I'll have a little, you know, mooch around on social media, see what I want to consume. But I don't want to, I probably won't be replying to WhatsApp messages. I probably won't, I definitely won't be looking at emails. I'll be trying to kind of get, I call call it reconfiguring, reconfiguring myself for the day. I just feel like that transition from sleep to wake is really difficult for me. Mm. And, I don't want to, I you know, speak to my partner and I'll you know, look after the dog and stuff, but there's just, I need some time to to get into a good headspace, really. When I wake up in the morning, I feel like completely, well, my brain's not working. Mm. It's in the same pattern. My mum's the same, actually. <clears throat> so I drink lots of water. I have a decaf coffee, actually. I don't really have much caffeine. I find it makes me more anxious. Um, I feed the dog and then I'll get myself ready and I'll take the dog for a lovely walk. And being in nature in the morning and just kind of, not having necessarily to engage with lots of people, just being out and in the fresh air, getting some sunshine, all of that stuff makes me feel like completely ready Mm. to then deal with public transport in London and all those kinds of things. So
0: yeah, that's kind of my routine. Yeah, it sounds nice. I think that, that... The antidote to rushing, piece I think, is so so powerful. I think for so many people, if you regardless of what time you need to leave the house, if you need to leave yeah. the house at eight and you wake up at seven or seven fifteen or seven thirty, that feeling that you just you know that like you said you, you're just straight out. And I think for a so lot of people, they're so you know of course sleep is incredibly important. So if they haven't gone to bed early, they want to get up as late as possible. And it's like how much time I you know I've seen people joke about this. It's like how much time do I really need to get from my bed to the shower to the bath? You know, and out the door and yeah. if it's a really short time then yeah i do i think that morning stress like kind of there's not a minute that oh, you can't you know you can't There's no five minutes to for error or five minutes for for anything is incredibly stressful so i like the idea that you said if you need to leave at nine you're getting up at half six because you're like i need yeah. to have time in the morning <laughs> i do yeah. i'm horrible otherwise
1: and you know i think my partner works from home and he will literally set his alarm for five to nine and then be at his desk at nine o'clock. Wow. I mean, fine, but it's, I can't do it like that. I couldn't do it like that at all. Yeah. And I do, yeah, I, I mean, I'm constantly teased for being a grandma because in the week I will go to bed at 10 because I need, I need eight oh, hours. Was right? I go to bed before 10. Good 10, 10, it's, 10 <laughs> it's 10
0: early? It's 10 <laughs>
1: early? <laughs> yes, yeah, so everyone says I'm a grandma. But I have to go to bed early in order to then have that time in the morning, which without that, yeah. I... I find it so difficult you know on Friday I had to go obviously it doesn't happen all the time but on Friday I had to go in and be in town at half eight um for a breakfast meeting and so I didn't have enough time for me to sit down and just get myself ready and if it's 20 minutes fine ideally it's half an hour but if it's 20 minutes just to sit on the sofa and drink my coffee and take a bit of time for myself that's that's kind of fine but I didn't even really have that because I did get out of bed later than I wanted to
0: I just
1: hate it. Yeah. I'm miserable. Yeah. It makes yeah. me really sad. Yeah, So the power hour. This
0: is it, the power hour. Yeah. Often, you know, 100%. People, people think, oh wait, I've got to get up early and do loads of stuff. Not necessarily. You're just giving yourself yeah. the gift of time, giving yourself the gift yeah. to choose to do whatever you want without rushing. And that is just, yeah, nice. game changing. Well, thank you so much, Sophie, for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you everyone, as always, for tuning in. I will be back next week with another episode and another basket of supplements. <laughs> no maybe not maybe not maybe just the vitamin d thanks (laughs) take care thank you